This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the law and the rule of law and the courts. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I write about these things for Slate Magazine. The High Court is in the midst of its long break this week, so aside from a little depressing revelations about the spouses of justices who evidently make some bank off relationships to their partners last week in a little ethics reform news this week, things are relatively quiet at the Marble Palace. In his State of the Union address on Tuesday night, President Biden largely forgot to mention the court or the EPA or the Clean Water Act or the loss of abortion rights for half the population. All that happened kind of in a blur. But given that Justices Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Sonia Sotomayor and Neil Gorsuch all took a pass this year anyhow, maybe it doesn't really matter. I just want to take a break for a moment to remember that when Justice Clarence Thomas stopped attending the State of the Union back in 2010, he explained his reasoning to students at Stetson University College of Law in Gulfport, Florida, by saying this, quote, I don't go because it has become so partisan and it's very uncomfortable for a judge to sit there. Thomas went on, quote, there's a lot that you don't hear on TV, quote, the catcalls, the whooping and hollering and the under the breath comments. Well, that was 2010. Happily, in 2023, scarcely any under-the-breath comments anymore under all the catcalls, the whooping, and the hollering. Maybe it's just as well that the justices don't attend. They lose an election. They take it to the courts. They lose in the courts. And what do they do next? They intimidate the judges or justices who ruled against them, who were doing their job, who were following the rule of law. For today's show, we are turning to a layer of the U.S. constitutional fabric that was once largely taken for granted, but now finds itself under intense scrutiny and the subject of threats both extra-legal and really systemic. We are focusing on the intersection of elections and state Supreme Courts, and there are very few people who have sat so squarely at that crossroads as our guest today, Justice Jill J. Karofsky of the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Later on in this show, Slate Plus members will get to hear Mark Joseph Stern and I chatting about some of the big issues we couldn't quite cram into the main show, including whether medication abortion is about to become illegal nationwide. And why one D.C. judge is thinking about trying to root the right to abortion in the 13th Amendment. If you are not a Slate Plus member, here's the skinny. Slate Plus members get ad-free versions of all of Slate's podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments for our show and other shows like Slow Burn and Political Gab Fest. You can always sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash amicus plus to access all of Slate's content and to support the work we do at the show. 
That's slate.com slash amicus plus. And on behalf of all of us at the magazine, thank you so much for supporting what we do. But first, today we wanted to try something we haven't done all that much of. First, we wanted to talk to a judge, something we have done on occasion, but we always want to do more of. Second, we wanted to talk to a judge who was on the front lines of efforts by Donald Trump and his lawyers to set aside the election results in 2020 and 2021. We have heard so much in the past two years about real-life consequences of election denialism, stop-the-steal threats, violent MAGA mobs directed at election workers like, say, Ruby Freeman. I've lost my name and I've lost my reputation. I've lost my sense of security. All because a group of people starting with number 45 and his ally, Rudy Giuliani, decided to scapegoat me and my daughter, Shay to push their own lies about how the presidential election was stolen. And we've heard from state officials like Michigan's Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, who told CBS News as recently as December 2022, she's still receiving threats and having folks show up to her office in groups. I mean, it it ebbs and flows oftentimes when the former president speaks or, or, or says something or levies an accusation, there's an uptick. We have heard from lots of people who have had to contend with armed vigilantes and doxing and threats and threats to their families and worse, as the big lie was pushed out by Donald Trump and his lawyers across the land, despite being defeated both over and over again in court and then repeatedly now at the ballot box. So yes, we've heard those stories and they are painful. But one of the stories we just haven't heard, and we wanted to try to share it today, is how these false claims of stolen elections impact the judicial branch, the judges who are supposed to be hearing cases, finding facts, and how they experience these threats in the days and weeks after the November 2020 election. Justice Jill J. Karofsky was elected to the Supreme Court of Wisconsin in April of 2020. Before her election to the Supreme Court, Justice Karofsky served as a judge on the Dane County Circuit Court She's also an ultramarathoner who has completed multiple marathons, ultramarathons, and Ironman competitions, and she's the single mom of two kids. Justice Karofsky sat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court when it heard the Trump campaign's challenge to the 2020 election results. In December of 2020, Justice Karofsky was part of the 4-3 to majority that ended up upholding Joe Biden's Wisconsin win over Donald J. Trump. Justice Karofsky, welcome to Amicus. It is a deep honor to have you on this show. Oh, Dahlia, it is an honor and pleasure to be here talking with you. Thanks for having me. So I think I want to start where I always start when judges agree to come on the show. Um, And I'm assuming that it is the same for state Supreme Court justices as it is for other jurists. And just make clear that, yes, your court is heading into a very consequential race, but also that you are doing the work of complicated issues ranging from elections and COVID rules and abortion measures. And you are not here to opine on cases and controversies that are going to come before you or to opine on politics in general. This is not that conversation, right? Correct. But you do, I think, want to talk a little bit about what it was like uh, back in 2020 to sit on the, in some ways, one of the landmark Trump v. Biden cases. Why do you want to talk about it now? 
I think there are a number of reasons. Um, first of all, I think it is very important for any public official to do whatever we can to to guard our democracy, to protect our democracy. And I think that what happened in December of 2020 and in the aftermath of that was, was very, very detrimental uh, to our democracy. So I think as a public official, um, I have a duty to come forward. I also think that because of some specific things that happened to me specifically, um, I have a hard time believing that I am the only justice or judge that uh, was the victim of, of some of that behavior. And I want other judges and justices around this country to know that if it also happened to them, they are not alone. Um, I also have uh, two kids, as, as you mentioned, who are uh, both aspiring to be part of the legal profession. And I just think I have a duty as a mom to to be a really, really good role model to them and to have difficult conversations and to call things out when I see them. And, and that's what I'm, I'm doing here. Let's do a little civics, if we could, first, uh, because you are, as I said, our very first state Supreme Court justice. And I wondered if you would just sketch out for listeners to the show who probably think about the U.S. Supreme Court compulsively and think of state Supreme Courts as kind of like I don't know, wallpaper or filler, how Wisconsin elects its Supreme Court justices and a sense of how you do your work, how many cases you hear a year, what kind of jurisdiction you have. Can you do Wisconsin Supreme Court 101 for us? Yes, I am happy to. Um, We in Wisconsin are elected. We uh, All the judges in Wisconsin are elected. We have a four-tier system. The, f- the bottom tier, the first tier, I would say, is a municipal court, a parking ticket, um, if, if uh, perhaps uh, your dog is out and you forgot to get the license for your dog, you might end up in municipal court. Um, the only penalties there are, are just a, are a fine. The next level is the circuit court. Those are our courts of general jurisdiction. They're in all 72 counties in Wisconsin. If you lose in the circuit court, you can go to the court of appeals. We have four district for our courts of appeals here in the state. And if you lose at the court of appeals, you can petition the Wisconsin Supreme Court to review uh, your case. You file a petition for review. We look at about 50 to 60 petitions for review every month, and we take approximately 10% of those, five to six. So we end up hearing anywhere between roughly 50 to 60 cases a year. When a case comes before us, uh, we, of course, uh, the briefs are filed. We schedule the case for oral argument. Uh, then we go and conference. I conference with my uh, six colleagues. There are seven of us on the Supreme Court. I conference with my six colleagues. And after the end of the conference, we figure out who's going to draft the case. We do it in a very scientific way. We have a green bedazzled St. Patrick's <laughs> Day derby hat Yay. and seven poker chips, okay. one through seven. Mine is number seven because I'm the most junior justice on the court. And uh, a poker chip is pulled out of the green St. Patrick's Day bedazzled hat. And it is that justice, as long as they're in the majority, it's that justice's job to to write the opinion. Um, our terms are, are 10 years. There can only be one Supreme Court election a year uh, for purposes of stability. And you, you did mention uh, this a little bit, but we are in the midst of a an election here. We have a very important election coming up. The primary will be February 21st, and the general election will be uh, April 4th. I want to go back to your own election just by way of setting the table. Uh, voting during a pandemic in Wisconsin, I think folks probably remember a little bit about that. Can you walk us through what your state Supreme Court race was like? 
Sure. It was um, normal, and I'm putting normal in air quotes because I don't think any campaign is normal, but it was it was a normal campaign until the middle of March or March 10th, 11th, 12th of 2020 when everything suddenly shut down. We had to pivot very quickly from a normal election to a COVID election. Um, all the other states, it was also during the same time of the presidential primary, of the Democratic presidential primaries, all the other states had postponed their elections. Our election was scheduled for the first week in April. Um, the um, governor tried to um, move the date of the election to keep people safe. And the state Supreme Court, the night before we were to vote, uh, said no. The U.S. Supreme Court, there was also a case up at the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court also uh, said that we were going to vote. They gave a little extra time for absentee ballots to come back, but that was it. And so people were forced to vote in a pandemic. They were forced to choose between keeping themselves and their family safe and going out and having their voice heard in a very, very important election. In Milwaukee, where they usually have 182 voting sites, there were five. And I thought we were going to lose after losing those those lawsuits. I, I woke up on the morning of the election day, and my phone was just blowing up with pictures of people in Milwaukee who were braving long, long lines in the face of COVID. And if you remember COVID from April of 2020, we were no one knew how it was transmitted. Everyone was really, really scared. But these these brave, brave, brave citizens of Wisconsin soldiered on, and they they voted. I then had to wait six days for the votes to be counted because, as you also may remember, mail was very, very slow at that time. So there was additional days. And then on uh, April 13th, I was um, just thrilled beyond words and honored to uh, win the election by almost 11 points. Um, we never should have had that election, and, and I wrote about that. Um, actually, there was a uh, had the opportunity to, to write um, an op-ed piece in the in the New York Times, spelling out all the reasons we should not have had an election on that day, but we did, and people were were brave and came forward and voted. And I know this is a tricky question for you to pick your way through, but I do think it's sort of everywhere and nowhere in the conversation thus far, which is. State Supreme Court elections are really different now uh, than they used to be. And I think, you know, I'm mindful of the fact that Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, when she stepped down from the court, kind of devoted so much of her career to thinking about whether elections were a good way to um, select judges and whether this was getting very, very corrupted and corroded by big money and virulent campaigns. And I wonder if there's sort of a way for you to reflect on the fact that in many ways everybody is watching uh, this Wisconsin upcoming election uh, in a way that I think even 10, 15 years ago, state Supreme Court elections just didn't matter. I, th I think I think they mattered. I think they they always they always mattered. I think for a number of reasons, though, the spotlight has been on state supreme courts. I think the the U.S. Supreme Court has been giving state supreme courts more of an opportunity, if you will, to decide on important issues. I think also uh, in a state like Wisconsin, where we have an impasse often between our governor, who's a Democrat, and the legislature, who's Republican. 
that a lot of issues, a lot of important issues from the state then come to the Supreme Court to be answered. So I think there's a, there are a, a few reasons that, that that is happening. So you're sworn in on August 1st of 2020. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, on mile 35 of an ultra marathon? Mile 35 of a 100-mile run. That's correct. There you go. And, and in December, suddenly you find yourself hearing a case in which the Donald Trump campaign is seeking to throw up more than 200,000 votes in Dane and Milwaukee counties. Can you just share with us the, the gist of what the argument that the campaign was pressing in your court was? I would like to just back up just a slight little bit and explain that it was uh, a very, very close election that uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris won by a little over 20,000 votes. Um, the Trump campaign then came forward and asked for, it was I think, 227,000. It was over 220,000 votes. Um, they wanted those to be just um, taken away from the votes cast only in two counties, only in Milwaukee County and Dane County. They uh, did not, w one thing that they were contesting was that there were absentee envelopes that witnesses had signed and the witness address was not completely filled out. And so sometimes the election officials would fill out the last part of the address, like the city or the state. Um, the second thing that they complaint was uh, an event called Democracy in the Park that occurred here in Madison where people dropped off their ballots in in a park so it was you know it was outside so they didn't wouldn't have to be inside where they would have a greater chance of perhaps contracting covid the uh, third issue had to do with the form it's an application that went with a ballot and they were contesting as to whether or not people had followed the statute, even though the Wisconsin Elections Commission had told people that this form was fine and this form had been used since, since 2010. So it had been used for, for a decade already. And the fourth issue had to do with voters that we use the term here, they were indefinitely confined. And if you are an indefinitely confined voter, you do not have to uh, show your ID to vote. You just have to say you're in, you certify you're indefinitely confined. And they wanted um, all indefinitely confined voters in Milwaukee and Dane County, uh, the number of, of voters um, that voted and said they were indefinitely confined, they wanted to draw down that number of voters as well. So there were, there were four issues, basically. So this gets to your court and... I guess at this point, things are a little bit weird, but then they get weirder. And I wonder if you would just paint a picture for our listeners of what it was like to be sitting in your chambers, poised to hear this litigation. Um, I guess oral arguments were conducted on Zoom, uh, December 12th, 2020. Can you just tell us what was happening outside your window, what was happening in the state capitol as you were trying to do the job of analyzing this case? Yes. Two other justices and I were at the Capitol building that day. Uh, the other four justices were, were not at the Capitol. I, I presume that they were they're hearing the, the case from home or, or, or wherever they were. My office at the Capitol looks out on one of the main thoroughfares in Madison. It looks out on East Washington Avenue. When I arrived at the Capitol that morning, I could see people protesting around the Capitol. It was winter and I had a coat and a hat on, so I just I went right through. 
my window looked right down on where people were protesting and walking around the Capitol. And I noticed when I got up to my office that they were armed protesters. So they were right outside my window carrying guns, walking around the Capitol area as this oral argument was transpiring. And I'm very interested in this question of what the protest was. I mean, was it that the court shouldn't be hearing the case or that it was clear one side or other one? I mean, was the issue that it was before your court or they were just trying to exert their First Amendment, oh, and Second Amendment rights to let you know what they thought? In other words, what what's the nature of the protest? I'm not exactly sure because I was inside and they were outside and it was December, so I did not have my window open. Um, I don't know what the protest was, but just remember that this is the month after Donald Trump has lost the election. So the people who were protesting were protesting the fact that he lost the election. And there had been many people, including former President Trump, who were seeding the idea that there had been fraud in the election. And people were getting increasingly upset about that notion based on the fact that President Trump and many others were seeding the big lie that there was fraud in the 2020 election. And you're not saying it, but I will. A month after the election, uh, less than a month before January 6th, so in some ways, you were seeing another one of the sort of dress rehearsals or dry runs for this idea that this is how we do democracy now. I didn't know it at the time because it was December, but when I watched what happened on January 6th, I knew I knew that it was a dress rehearsal. Exactly. I knew, to borrow your terms, I knew it was a dry run. Of course it was. Time now to take a pause and hear from some of our great sponsors. More now from Justice Jill J. Karofsky of the Wisconsin Supreme Court on judging and democracy and the states. I guess I want to ask <laughs> how it feels to be doing this sort of dry, dusty work of judging while this is going on outside your window. I mean, presumably there aren't armed protesters outside your window every day. Does it affect the way when you're sitting on the bench trying to kind of conduct the findings of fact and trying to apply the law that there are people who are armed to the teeth outside the building? So during the oral argument, I think it was a 90-minute oral argument, which is a little longer than we normally have, I was just I was looking at my Zoom screen. I had pages and pages in front of me that I was also looking at. We had only received the case, you know, hours before really. We did there just wasn't there was we had to learn a lot of material very very quickly. So I was really engrossed in what was going on with the oral argument. I was distracted from time to time because I could hear them out there, but I I they didn't have my attention. What had my attention during the hearing was what was going on during that hearing, what was going on on Zoom, what the attorneys were saying. So, Justice Karofsky, during oral arguments, you kind of ended up making something of a stir around the nation when you pointed out to President Trump's campaign lawyer, Jim Troupas, that he was seeking to throw out votes, as you said earlier, 
only in the two Wisconsin counties with the highest number of black voters. And I think you said. In your lawsuit, what you have done here is you have targeted the vote of almost a quarter of a million people, a quarter of a million people, not statewide in Wisconsin, but a quarter of a million people who live only in Dane County and Milwaukee County, two of our 72 counties, two counties that are targeted because of their diverse populations, because they're urban, I presume because they vote Democratic. This lawsuit, Mr. Troopas, smacks of racism. And I do not know how you can come before this court and possibly ask us for a remedy Donald Trump's that is unheard of team complained in American about history. this remark, right, to the then GOP-controlled Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. Immediately, this was sort of pulled out as something way out of bounds that you had said. Is that right? So I had watched Donald Trump's lawyer, Jim Troopas, argue the day before in Milwaukee County before the case came to us. And I was getting increasingly concerned about the fact that if we heard the case and then we were going to hear the case, that we were suddenly, the Supreme Court was going to be a stage for their big lie theater. And I was I was very, very worried about that, both for the integrity of the voters from November and for the integrity of the institution of the court that, that I sit on. And when I started to read the briefs and really start to digest what I was reading, my level of concern just kept rising and rising and rising because what they were trying to do was disenfranchise voters from only Dane and Milwaukee County. They were trying to disenfranchise voters from the two counties, the most urban counties, the counties that are vote Democratic always, the counties that have the largest number of minorities living in them. And the lawsuit, and I said it then, and, and I will repeat what I said then, the lawsuit smacked of racism. And it, it did smack of racism. And I, and I said that, and I pointed that out. And there were a lot of people who were upset by my comments. And I stand by what I said, because that was what I was reading. And then I asked Mr. Troopas if he could tell me if you could give me the example, an example of one voter in Dane County or one voter in Milwaukee County who had cast a fraudulent ballot. The other comment you made that day, which I think also got folks hackles up, was... In this state, we accept the will of the voters and they spoke. And for you to come forward today and start just using, throwing out allegations of fraud with zero evidence what whatsoever, you know, what is America? It is not self-governance. I'm sorry, it is self-governance. It is not governance from a king. And what you want is you want us to overturn this election so that your king can stay in power. And that is so un-American. I'm just reflecting on what you said about not knowing January 6th was coming and yet how prescient it was. This feels like, uh, uh, again, sort of speaking a truth that then comes true, which is that this is a sort of monarchic view of power that has nothing to do 
with voters or democracy. In the moment that you said it, did you think it was going to sort of become emblematic of you being disrespectful or somehow, I don't know, crossing some line in your, I, I, we should note, this is what oral argument is for, right? Right. Oral argument is so you can test the theory of the lawyer. So you can test the theory of both sides. So you can ask pointed questions and ask them, what about what I'm saying? What about how I'm characterizing your argument is wrong? And I am not the only judge or possibly justice to make the comment and to to draw an analogy between what was happening in those post-election lawsuits and how much it looked and it felt like they were trying to keep their king in power. And this isn't like a notion that I just, you know, came up with, right? Alexander Hamilton wrote about this in the Federalist Papers. I mean, we had a whole revolution, right, about kings. It's not like I suddenly was pulling something out of thin air. This truly is what our country was founded on. It's why our country was founded the way it was. It's why we have the system and government we have. It's why the rule of law is so important here. It's why we have three branches. And I was seeing it being you know, just, you know, absolutely um, destroyed in the courtroom that I had worked so hard to get to right before my very eyes. I felt like I had a duty. I felt like the people of Wisconsin elected me to protect our democracy. And there was no other way I could think of to explain what was happening. There was no other question I could think of to ask, no other way to put it than the fact that they were trying to keep their king in power. I'm going to ask you to talk about what followed because what followed were threats and and nasty messages and voicemails and and some of it was just rank anti-Semitism, rank misogyny directed at you and and I want you to talk about it only to the extent that you're comfortable because I'm very mindful of the fact that sometimes when you ask people about the awful stuff that has been directed at them and their families and their loved ones, we're sort of asking them to repeat things that were horrible and traumatizing at the time. And so there's a part of me, you know, that wants to (laughs) read back to you the website, the white supremacist website, Daily Stormers references, you know, to you and uh, your colleague, Justice Dallet, as, quote, Wisconsin Jews and read back the anti-Semitic conspiracy crap. But I also kind of don't (laughs) want to make you relive uh, the nuts and bolts of it. But I wondered if you would be willing to talk a little bit about the experience of having just this unbelievable blowback based on your comments at argument directed at you. There were a number of phone calls that came into my office, and there were, I think, some emails as well. And there may have been a written letter. I, I just can't recall right now. Um, I There was a, a records request, and I asked my clerks to download all the calls onto a thumb drive that we gave to uh, the reporter. Um, I never listened to those, and I didn't read the article um, until a couple of days ago. <laughs> um, because I just I didn't want to I didn't want to read all of it at the time, um, and now you know having had a couple of years, um, I'm glad I had it. It was difficult to read even a couple of days ago. Um, you know, it's all the terrible things that you think people might say to a public official. It's very very personal and um, downright mean. Um, 
my biggest concern at that time, of course, was my was my kids. I mean, I, you know, I don't want them to be to be in harm's way. Um, I did have increased security for um, a number of weeks afterwards, um, as did, as you mentioned, uh, my colleague Rebecca Dallet, and as did uh, one of our other colleagues on the court. I know. So here's another thing that I wanted to ask about. Your monarch line got cited in a footnote in the dissent when we finally get a 4-3 ruling. And the dissent goes after your, you know, as we just said, your, your very deeply felt, historically grounded analysis of the difference between how monarchies and democracies work and, and sort of accused you of, quote, overt political bias, and then went on to say, this destroys confidence in the integrity and impartiality of the judiciary. And and I think this idea of who is destroying confidence in the judiciary is a subject we have mined so much on the show. And a little bit of me wants to ask what happens when these accusations are kind of coming from inside the house, when your colleagues are saying, no, you're the reason that people have lost confidence. And I also wonder a little bit if this is just a race to the bottom where, I mean, we are certainly seeing on the Supreme Court now, justices, you know, pointing the finger at one another and saying, you're eroding confidence. No, you're eroding confidence. And I just wonder how you pull out of this nosedive when it's not in the mouths of the press. It's not in the mouths of academics. It's coming from your colleagues on the bench. Right. Well, I obviously disagree with my colleague who who wrote that. And I don't think that standing up for democracy, I don't think that calling a lawsuit racist when you think it is, I don't think talking about the importance of, as you said, you know, the fact that we need to, to guard our democracy from a monarch, I don't think any of that erodes confidence. Um, I, I think what I said might actually, I would hope, help the impression people have of the court when they see people standing up and 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 pushing back and fighting for what's right. As far as another justice writing that in an opinion, I work really, really hard to have positive relationships with my colleagues. They can write what they want to write. I can't control that. I can just put my head down and keep doing my job and try to have the most positive relationship I can with the other six members of my court because we have important business to get done. We don't just kick out one case a year, right? Like I said, we have 50 to 60 a year. So in addition to that Trump versus Biden case, we had another 40 some odd cases that we had to get the answer right, that we had to to, to do justice. And so I had to just put my head down and, and go forward and and do the work that I was elected to do. We're going to take a short break. Now, let's return to my conversation with Justice Jill Karofsky of the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So this is exactly where I wanted us to land in this moment, which is you're trying to move forward. You have other stuff to think about. You know, this is behind you. The, the you know, case is over. Uh, we're moving forward. And yet after the threats and the guys with the guns and the messages and, you know, the pot shot in the dissent, there's a complaint to the Judicial Commission, <laughs> and it just feels like this hangs over you for even longer. And I know you haven't talked about this publicly, but can you just walk us through that next phase of this sort of endless saga of being dragged into the past? Yes. Uh, the the term ended. Our term ends. It's 
very similar to the U.S. Supreme Court. Our term ends on June 30th, and we are able to catch our breath for a few weeks in the summer. And in August, I went up to my chambers to talk with my clerks, and they said, hey, there's something you need to see. And they showed me a letter from the Wisconsin Judicial Commission saying that there had been a complaint filed against me because of some of the things, and you and I have just talked about them, that I said during the Trump versus Biden oral argument. So this is nine months after the oral argument took place. Now, all of a sudden, there is a complaint in the with the Wisconsin Judicial Commission that I, I needed to attend to. For those of us who don't know what a complaint to the Wisconsin Judicial Commission signifies, is this a big deal or is this like a go sit in the naughty chair? How, how big a deal is this for you? It just depends. They have a lot of discretion in how they dispose of cases. Once they get a complaint, they first have to decide whether or not the complaint warrants an investigation. And the letter I was receiving was saying, yes, this complaint warrants an investigation. After investigation is complete, you have a chance to, you know, quote, defend yourself. Um, if in the end they think that you have violated the judicial rules of conduct, they can do any number of things from a private reprimand to a public reprimand. They can, uh, and of course it goes to the, they, they, have a, they make a recommendation, the recommendation comes to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and the Wisconsin Supreme Court decides what the penalty is. I mean, it can go all the way to removal from office. So we can go from a from a, a dismissal all the way to removal from office and, and and many many things in between those two. But those are the two ends of the continuum. And how does this ultimately resolve? First of all, I, I had to hire a lawyer, and I had to pay for the lawyer out of my own pocket. Second of all, at the judicial commission meets every two months. So every two months, I had to get on the phone with my lawyer and figure out whether or not they were going to be taking up my case at that meeting. Um, we wrote a, a long response. There were several parts of the complaint, and we addressed each one of them. Um, they included the line that, that you talked about, about calling the lawsuit racist. They included me saying they wanted to keep their king in power. They complained about things like me making facial expressions. They complained about me doing things like looking down and looking at notes. It was so baseless, every little part of it. But I had, to, I had to hire a lawyer. I had to pay my lawyer every two months. We worked together to draft a response. We filed a response. And nothing happened for 16 months. Nothing. They didn't move it along. They didn't do more of an investigation. So I just had to keep paying out a lawyer and waiting to see what was going to happen and waiting to see what was going to happen. And then finally, in December of last year, they said that they were going to dismiss it, but they were going to put a letter of concern in my file. We responded recently with a letter saying, I have not acknowledged any wrongdoing. I am not going to acknowledge any wrongdoing. I did nothing wrong. I stood up for what I believed was right. And I would do it again because I think that is what the people of Wisconsin elected me to do. They elected me to guard our democracy with every cell in my body. That's what I did. That's what I'm doing. And that is what I'm going to do. So now I feel like I have to ask you about this news item that just came out just this past week. The Associated Press released some audio recordings from November 5th, two days after the election, featuring political operatives in Wisconsin essentially conceding 
they couldn't win the election, but that they would, quote, fan the flames of allegations. Here's the drill. Comms is going to continue to fan the flame and get the word out about Democrats trying to steal this election. We'll do whatever they need their help with. Okay, so just be on standby in case there's any stunts we need to pull. It feels like it's very much of a piece with what we kept hearing from the January 6th commission, which is time and time and time again, Donald Trump and his attorneys knew this was baseless, and they just kept opting to, quote unquote, fan the flames with bogus litigation and false narratives that ultimately, as you keep saying, culminate and stop the steal on January 6th. I mean, there's real people who are hurt, who are threatened, who are terrorized, who are in, on January 6th killed as a consequence of this decision to know that there is no merit and to go forward anyway. It feels to me that was kind of at the root of one of the things you were arguing long before January 6th. Absolutely. And the pattern was this. It is, we lose an election, we're going to fight it in the courts, which is fine, right? But they lost in over 60 cases. But then when they lost in the courts, instead of saying, we lost, right? Like, we, 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 we brought our case forward. We respect the decision of the judiciary. We respect democracy, and we respect the rule of law instead of stopping there. They lose an election. They take it to the courts. They lose in the courts. And what do they do next? They intimidate the judges or justices who ruled against them, who were doing their job, who were following the rule of law. I mean, there, there are lots of ways to effectuate change in a democracy, right? You can do it through voting. You can do it through legislation. You can do it through lobbying. You can try to change rules at the administrative level. You can take a case to court and, and ask a court to, to find a law unconstitutional. There are other ways that you can do it, though, that don't follow the rule of law that are anti-democratic, right? You can... You can suppress votes. You can hurt people who vote. Um, you can punish them for voting. You can make it really, really difficult to vote. You can harass public officials, which which you have done a, you know, a really, really great job of, of covering. I mean, this is just one more way that they were trying to effectuate change in a democracy, but it is it is a way that is dangerous and it is a way that undermines the rule of law. Can I ask you if... The midterms, these just past midterms and the ways in which it felt as though there was such a widespread renunciation of some of the big stop the steal energy and the worst forms of election denialism and a sense that even though these ideas you and I are talking about are abstract to the point of almost, you know, ephemeral, that somehow the American people did not want to side with that, you know, gun-toting, vigilante, doxing, January 6th energy? In other words, is there some comfort in the fact that given the chance to go over that cliff, so, so, so many voters seem to have backed away from it? Or is that me being wildly optimistic? Dahlia, I would not be here talking to you today, telling you all of this, bringing up all these memories, if I didn't think that there was a brighter future. I wouldn't do it. Of course there is. 
Of course, there are great people in this country who are doing whatever they can to to move the ball forward. There are people in this country who are going to vote, and, and they are going to the polls to vote even though it's difficult for them. There are people who are deciding to run for office, and they are sacrificing many, many things to, to run for office. And once they get there, they are doing whatever they can to make good decisions based in, in research and based in science and based in reality. So absolutely, I think that there is a brighter future than what I saw in December of 2020 from the state capitol and from what we all saw from January 6th of 2021 in Washington, D.C. Yes, there is, I believe, we have to be optimistic. And, and I think my optimism comes from the fact that every eligible voter in America has the opportunity to vote. They have an opportunity to participate in our democracy. That's what we need them to do. That's what's going to change things. I, I want to end by reading from the majority opinion in this Trump challenge we've been discussing, and, and this was not penned by you. Quote, the challenges raised by the campaign in this case come long after the last play or even the last game. The campaign is challenging the rule book adopted before the season began. Striking these votes now, after the election, and in only two of Wisconsin's 72 counties, when the disputed practices were followed by hundreds of thousands of absentee voters statewide, would be an extraordinary step for this court to take. We will not do so, end quote. This was a four to three decision. Uh, one Republican on the court sided against Donald Trump. This was a razor thin margin in a case that on the merits had, as I think we both have agreed, very little merit. And and so I'm just over and over again gobsmacked by how very close we came. And for your part in pulling us back from that abyss, I just want to thank you. Well, thank you. I, I didn't do it alone. Um, I agree with those lines, of course, of the majority. And I also made sure with my colleague, Rebecca Dallet, we panned a concurrent to that opinion, saying there was no fraud in the 2020 election. Justice Jill J. Karofsky was elected to the Supreme Court of Wisconsin in April of 2020. She is an ultramarathoner, the single mom of two children. She sat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court when it heard the Trump campaign's challenge to the 2020 election. Judge Karofsky, thank you so much uh, for your candor and for your clarity and for joining us on the show this week. Thank you very much for having me. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you, as always, for listening in. And thank you so very much for your letters and your questions. You can keep in touch at amicus at slate.com, or you can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of podcasts at Slate, and Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. We will be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. And until then, take good care.